Hello, this is Malcolm and Simone again with Octavian at this time because he's home from school today. Um, and we are excited to be talking to you. What's the topic today, Simone? Actually, this a lot has to do with our kids, but not Octavian. It has to do with our daughters. Um, I'm asking, are I'm women terrified. doomed? Yeah, uh, we're, we're actually kind of concerned about our daughters raising them. And ever since uh, one autumn day last year, as we were driving to a friend's wedding in Texas, reading a really amazing piece by Susie Weiss called Hurts So Good about the Spoonies movement, we've been talking a lot about young women, um, how they experience puberty differently, um, how they experience the world differently, and how we could raise our own daughters in a way where they don't face plant in the face of modernity, which is... Um, so let's talk about this Spoonies piece because I, I found it really, really fascinating. It's this sort of mind virus that's been spreading among young girls and we've seen mind viruses like it spread before. So can you describe it a bit? Yeah, so in her piece, uh, Susie Weiss describes the plight of a couple of young women that she profiles who start off basically experiencing some kind of very difficult to diagnose condition, um, turning to social media for comfort, solace, and company as they suffer with this position, and then kind of are incentivized by social media and by the other infirm people that they follow and socialize and are kind of positioning themselves with. Um, they get motivated essentially to get sicker and sicker. And so they sort of, it's it's like a modern wave of hypochondria that often is founded in and inspired by real and serious conditions that just end up getting blown out of proportion. And I, I want to emphasize that like the suffering that that these people in this movement have, um, I, we don't think by any means is it not real. I mean, one, I think a lot, many of their foundational conditions are real. Like maybe it starts with long COVID. Maybe it starts with fibromyalgia. Maybe it starts with an autoimmune disorder. Long COVID is probably not real. Well, well, but I mean, but it maybe starts with COVID then. Actually, um, I didn't talk about the studies on long COVID because I find that really interesting. Okay, let's dive into it. Yeah. I mean, so I guess... Uh, one thing that we found when we we read a little bit more about long COVID, because we were both very concerned about it and concerned about our kids getting it, um, is when we looked into we the We were research, not actually concerned about it. We were laughing at people who said they had it, but continue. Well, you never know, right? Um, I appreciate the way you present things in the nicest possible light. There was a time when we were concerned about it. You are such a kind person. There Just, seems you know. to be a high correlation between issues like anxiety and mental illness and the development of long COVID. Um, which is to say that maybe this is a hypochondria thing or people are taking symptoms that they first Hold experienced. On. The best study was the one that looked at people who had been diagnosed with COVID and not told that they were diagnosed with COVID. Uh, like, right. Turns out you had zero long COVID symptoms in that group, but lots of long COVID symptoms in the group that was told they had COVID, uh, which to me heavily implies it's completely, uh, what's the word here? I, uh, whatever. Anyway, continue with the. Well, you, you could say it's a nocebo, I guess. Um, yeah. Or like, you know, that getting COVID, you think you had COVID is a nocebo that caused you to have um, effects that are negative. So, yeah. Um, it, so you were triggered by this thing. You start to believe that it causes negative effects. Um, and I think this is also the case with long COVID, Malcolm, that, you know, very much you are experiencing this. You are have you're experiencing brain fog. You're experiencing real 
pain. It just happens to be real pain, brain fog, et cetera, exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah, That like you have generated because of your beliefs, which I think is really interesting. Um, And so the, the Spoonies movement got its name essentially from this concept of, um, Someone, someone in the movement used a metaphor around spoons, like, you know, everyone else has uh, fairly boundless or unlimited energy. You, know, you can get out of bed, do whatever it is that you want. Um, you know, you, you, your cup is full. Whereas uh, if you are suffering from one of these chronic illnesses, you only have energy in tiny allotments, in spoonfuls. You only have three or four spoonfuls of energy. So maybe you spent one to get out of bed. You spent one to take a shower and you spent one to eat breakfast. And now it's you have one left and that's it. And then you can't do anything else. You're in bed for the rest of the day. And that was that was a, you know, a comparison used to help people understand um, how it felt to experience these conditions. And that's why they're called spoonies. Um, so Malcolm and I read this article while on this long car drive and it kind of blew our minds because it really changed the way that we looked at, at female adolescents because most of the people suffering from these conditions, most Spoonies are female. Um, there were young females, females around the age of puberty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's at least started in puberty mm-hmm. and in many cases extended into adulthood. Um, and then we also started talking about this more broadly. Um, if for example, you read a lot of Regency era, novels there are lots of um women either young or adult women who are hypochondriacs who you know sort of retire to their their rooms and uh you know may have completely imagined illnesses um and so i I also feel like this isn't necessarily just something that young women are coming up with now um and so we started talking about well why why are women developing these these chronic illnesses and causing themselves genuine and real pain. Um, Thanks, Octavian. What a cool school bus. Um, Why are they developing this real pain when men are not at the same proportion? What's going on here? Um, Yeah. So I think first let's talk about what is psychologically happening with these communities. So it appears that that a portion of women uh, have an innate desire because we see this all the way back to the Regency period uh, with like, what was it? Like Jane Austen books or something. She would complain about this. Uh, she'd be like these women. There would are- be characters who like were clearly making it up. Yeah. Um, and so clearly some women have always had a desire to sort of pretend to be sicker than they are, but how does it get so extreme in these communities? And it's what you are seeing is a snowball effect in these communities where because community identity is based around the thing that differentiates you from mainstream society is this infirmity, the social hierarchy of the community is of course going to in part be determined by your level of infirmity. In fact, in Susie's article, she talks, uh, she interviews uh, a, a young woman talking about how she would take pictures of the pills that she took every day um, and she would pad them a little bit with vitamins to look like she had to take more pills to look more like the extra sick young women who had much bigger piles of pills. And it's just insane to think well, and that, we're like, talking about the envy they felt for women who were sicker than them. Yeah. Um, and there were they, different statuses, like the cornies or something, which meant that you were like connected to a thing all day. And like there was aspiration to try to get one of those tubes connected to you or one of the, the, the things. So you you would raise in status within the community by how visibly infirmed you were. And of course, 
if you create a community like that, you are going to exacerbate anyone who has any sort of psychosomatic tendency towards illness yeah. to begin to build those illnesses and, and compound upon this. So again, to as what Simone said earlier, these people are almost certainly feeling real things. But I think another way you can really tell that this community is probably is, is the zebra thing that the community is, is around, which is doctors always say, if you're here, hooves think horses, not zebras, because, you know, zebras are rarer. And so they all have the zebras, like the community logo, because they're like, I have the rare thing. I have the unique thing. I have the special thing. But that feeling of wanting to be special and not understood by adults is something that people, men and women, understand as they go through puberty. However, women experience puberty really uniquely compared to the way they are told they are going to experience it. And I think this is a great dissatisfaction. We basically raise women expecting to have male puberty, to like get really horny. And, and, and of course, some women do experience puberty that way, but it is the minority of women. So talk about how the average woman experiences puberty, Simone. Yeah. So yeah, Malcolm and I started talking about this when we read the article, the average woman, I mean, at least from my experience, there's a lot of self-hatred. There is a lot of um, self-doubt. There's a, a desire to be beautiful and desired and precious. Um, and that's really difficult because that requires basically the modeling and involvement uh, and feelings of other people, which you can't control. Um, whereas I think, you know, with, with, Adolescent males, when they experience puberty, that it's a lot of it's more like, you know, who can I hook up with, which it still involves someone else doing something. But I think it's 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 a little bit different when part of it's like a feeling uh, like a, a feeling you want people to have about you instead of like, did I literally get someone to bang me? Cause that, that's a more binary yes or no. Like, did someone bang me? Yes. Am I having sex? Yes or no. Can I get sex? Yes or no. Whereas I think for many women, even the most desired, attractive, coveted, precious women in any particular social ecosystem may not feel like it's enough. Um, and I feel like that's a very dangerous and toxic position to be in as an adolescent female. Um, and I, it's something that I think we worry about with our daughters. So I really agree with what you're saying, Simone. And I think what we're actually seeing here is while in men, the core desire that sort of elevates during puberty is the desire to have sex. In women, the core desire that elevates is the desire to be desired and mm. cherished. Um, and that is much harder, as you say, because it's not a binary thing. It's not something you can easily say that this is definitely being fulfilled or any uh, uh, love or admiration I'm getting from my community is genuine affection. And so, you know, even if a girl is popular, she can still convince herself, well, I'm not really uh, desired or cherished enough. Or not the right person desires me, for example. Like only gross people desire me, not the person I want, et cetera. Yes, yes. And it's a much harder uh, sort of mental thing to masturbate. Um, but what's really interesting when I say masturbate, I don't mean like in a literal sense. I mean, just like for feeling. I don't know that like, actually, you know, yeah. as an, as an adolescent boy, like. You, you can't just masturbate. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking is like, I, I can't think of something that I could do. I guess like I could read romance novels. I guess that's kind of the female equivalent of masturbating yeah. is inserting yourself into a Mary Jane character in like a romantic manga or like historical romance novel or something like that. But I, I don't know. I feel like 
that's that's um yeah maybe it's moderately effective but it's not great yeah no i i agree um and so it is really when you have a community like this the message that they can appeal to girls with is you will become delicate you will become something that society wants to protect you will be unique you will it's an incredibly appealing message that does i mean if we're talking about how hard it is to masturbate that this is probably the best way you could conceivably masturbate. Well, especially because, yeah, you have to be taken out of school. You have to go to doctor's appointments. You have to see specialists. A lot of money is being over. spent on you. you um, yeah. And, like, it has to be spent on you. Like, maybe you can't get your parents to, like, spend a lot of money on buying you purses or something. But mm -hmm. if they think that you're dying, like, they're probably going to pay for that CT scan out of pocket, even if they have to. Um, and this is not implying that anyone is doing this on purpose. Again, like, this is... No, and this is, it's really interesting. I think it's just a complete mind virus. It is, it is <laughs> something where every, uh, most people involved in the community, even if they might be, uh, some bad actors might be elevating the amount that they're actually sick. Most people are genuinely suffering. Um, and I think that it cannot be overstated how much if you are psychologically motivated to be in a state of suffering or you believe you're suffering, you will begin to suffer in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, when we talked about this, from this, how do we protect our daughters from this? How, yeah, how do we, we protect them from sort of the, the craziness that comes with, with guys, you know, I often say it's, it's, it's kind of like somebody uh, snuck up to you in the night when you're going through puberty and like injected with you with like a, a an addiction <laughs> to a hard drug and you will do stupid and unethical things sometimes in an effort to get that drug to do when you all those systems. But you are like, we talked video like mail you're like it would be great to have sex 12 times a day with all different women and like as an adult man you would be like oh my god that sounds so gross um so you your brain just does enter this crazy state but it is a controllable state how i mean were you able to control this when you were growing up and how would you recommend we may avoid you know, if you did run into pitfalls, some of those for our own daughters. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things that we planned on doing when we first discussed this was we are going to discuss this dynamic with our daughters because it's very helpful to at least know what you're undergoing, right? So at least they can say, I'm feeling this for probably these evolutionary reasons. And, you know, here are some ways, here are some outlets that I can turn to, um, that will help me feel better and also to maybe recognize problematic behavior for what it is rather than giving it fuel. Because the thing that I'm most worried about is that anyone we care about or frankly anyone at all starts to develop real pain, real symptoms because of this. I would much rather have them just feel insufficiently loved, which I think pretty much, you know, or coveted or what, you know, desired, whatever it is, because I don't think this is something you can satiate as a teen or even as an adult. Well, when it's like turned up to 11 in the same way that with guys, it gets turned up to 11. Yeah, but I'm, I'm yes, it, and it's so turned up high, but I, I would rather have them just feel that pain um, and understand that the solution isn't to turn to, you know, uh, hypochondria um, than to just not be aware. So I feel like awareness is a really big part of this. But, you know, I also think that to the broader story of like how we raise our daughters, I, I don't think it's just that. I mean, 
this is a trending issue now in the past few months, a lot of discussion in intellectual spheres um, revolved around how female adolescents disproportionately appear to be suffering from a mental health crisis. Like everyone's suffering from a mental health crisis. No one's doing well right now, but it seems like those who are doing the worst are female adolescents, um, that social media appears to make things worse by some measures. Um, obviously I think Spoonies provide one example of how that can be made worse. Maybe it's like dominance hierarchies that just make things impossible, impossible standards created by filters. Um, however, I do remember you came up with a strategy that I thought was a pretty good way to deal with this and to mitigate this in terms of internal family culture. And it's to never respect or elevate somebody for suffering. And mm. this may seem like an obvious thing, but in our society today, it's something we do all the time. I mean, this is what people talk about when they talk about like the oppression Olympics. We have this narrative in our society uh, where you are higher status if you are a victim in some way or if you are suffering or beleaguered in some way. When you elevate that, you make you you create an incentive to to feel that way about yourself, which causes suffering that might not need to be there otherwise. And this is a hard thing to do in a family, in a society where this is just predominant. You know, how do you raise kids without, and I think the only thing you can do is just constantly repeat to them, you know, in this family, you do not earn respect and, and nor should you respect yourself for uh, needless suffering or beleagueredness or being a victim in a situation. Just work to get out of that situation and move on to the next thing. And I think that that does, to some extent, mitigate this. Because I think where you see this the most is in families that initially react to the suffering with a level of fuss and with a level of respect and special treatment. Hmm. Yeah, so there's this um, initial reinforcement as well. Like people, a lot of these people probably wouldn't be leaning into it if it didn't have some kind of reward loop at play. Yeah. Um, I mean, social media obviously doesn't help because maybe they're, they can just exclusively be getting that online. So that also matters. But yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's really interesting that we live in an age where that, that's at play. Do you think that there are other dynamics that make women uniquely susceptible to poor mental health in the face of modernity and social media? Well, this is really interesting. You know, I don't think a lot of these, um, I mean, I think that women optimized biologically for conditions that were even more different from modern conditions than the ones that men are optimized for. So in the book, The Fragmentist Guide to Sexuality, uh, one of the things we go into in great detail is what was the actual evolutionary environment of human beings. Um, and we think that the evidence points that it was probably pretty similar to chimpanzee environments and, and not bonobo environments where you did have frequent raids on uh, tribes where the males would be killed and the infants would be killed to get the women fertile again as quickly as possible. Um, and then the women would be integrated into the new tribe. Uh, and there's a lot of things that, that, that suggest that this behavior was likely. One is, uh, you know, if you look at porn statistics for women, uh, they're much more likely than men to be interested in ultra-violent porn. 
um, which would suggest that there was at some point some sort of selective or evolutionary pressure for that uh, because it is not societally coded. And, and there is evidence for that. We ran a big study to try to find out if like spanking or uh, other things that happened to a person in their childhood or things they experienced in terms of the culture they grew up in uh, affects the frequency with certain fetish appearance. And we found almost nothing. There, was, there were very few ties. Uh, and what that indicated to us is most of this is probably hard-coded. Uh, and, and also what indicates this is you sort of see it cross-culturally. Um, but uh, in addition to that, you also have this infanticide instinct. So if you look at children who grow up with step-parents in our modern society, uh, their death rates are stupidly higher. Like it's like 500 or 5,000% higher. Like it's, it's like scary higher. Uh, and I don't think that people are killing their stepchildren. I just think that there is a, a huge lack of care going on there that you would have for your own child. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, you have um, the earliest sources. So we do know our ancestors, you know, before humans, infanticide is practiced in chimps, it's practiced in gorillas. So we know where, wherever we split off, infanticide was likely sort of a, an instinctual practice upon these raids. And then we know our earliest historic source, the Bible, or one of the earliest really detailed historic sources, uh, there's a, a bit I could find the line, or you could just Google it, where it's like, you know, when you conquer a city, what you're supposed to do is take the babies and smash them on rocks or throw them off walls. Um, and that's like a weird thing to say. Like nobody's just like casually that evil unless that was considered a common practice at the time. So we do know at the beginning of the period, at the beginning of human evolution, this was a common practice. And we do know at the end of the period, you know, when the Bible was written, this is a common practice. So I'm assuming it was probably a common practice throughout, but you only would need this practice if you were frequently having these raids where all the men were killed and the women were adopted into the new tribe. And then there's further evidence that shows when women switch sides and when men switch sides in games of competition, um, which is men, typically their bond with their faction increases the more that faction is losing. Whereas women's bond to their faction actually switches to the winning faction if it looks like their faction is losing. And this would have made perfect evolutionary uh, 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 reason. So if you're uh, in a tribe that's being raided, if you know that the men are all going to be killed, then you really need to double down if it looks like they're losing, if you're a man. But if you're a woman, it makes sense to switch sides, potentially. Um, so where this gets... Um, I forgot why we went on this tangent. You were saying, and I'm actually really intrigued by this, that, that women today are living in... Oh, yes, yes, yes. So today, women don't have this fear of becoming sex slaves or having their <laughs> tribe all killed or everyone they know murdered. Presumably or... that would be a good thing. <laughs> well, typically it would be a good thing, but I think that we are, to some extent, so biologically coded uh, for these earlier tribal structures um, that especially when women uh, don't have to worry, because if you look at the women that fall into these movements, they're typically middle-class or upper-class women. So they are women that don't really need to worry about any threat in their life. You know, these are women who are not worrying about food security. They're not really worried about being murdered. They are not mm -hmm. really worried about anything. And I don't think that their brains are wired to handle that because of the absolutely terrible state that early women lived in. So they began to invent threats and fears and reasons to worry because their environment doesn't have them. And I, and I actually think that uh, this is something that the, the male brain doesn't do quite as readily 
when it's in this this puberty state. Um, and so I think this is another thing is how do you introduce sort of safe hardship to children's lives where it's not genuine hardship that could cause them, you know, irreparable damage or psychological issues, but enough hardship so they do actually have something to struggle with or worry about on occasion. Because I think when you just completely remove that, that's when you get this sort of psychological spiral. Yeah, I forgot that that was a major theme that we picked up on that like these seem to be for the most part privileged well off young women who yeah we're not struggling to like take care of other siblings or deal with a difficult householder. Oh yeah, um, they're much more them. often single women as well. That was another thing. Yeah, they didn't seem to be in large families very often. The, yeah, this didn't seem to be a crowded family environment kind of thing, um, which is super interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean it's. That's fascinating. I, and I, you know, it's, it's weird because usually when you and I are talking internally, we're talking about all the advantages that women have to the extent that like, even it, it would make sense for many people to want to, even if they're not for other reasons, technically trans to transition male to female, because women are honestly like treated nicer in many contexts and, and given, given more advantages in many contexts, because well, I mean, one of the, the communities that we've discovered most recently that we're just really interested in is the trans community, which is about transition for gain rather oh, than I'm because you to stop here because I want to do a whole podcast on a whole episode. On, yeah. So, but anyway, like, so it, it's, it's interesting, right. That for, for the most part, you see people wanting to go over in droves to the feminine side because of the, the advantages it gets or the care or the attention or the Well, that was the, love. the initial thing. I mean, now the trans community is, is, is predominantly women transitioning to people transitioning to men. Yeah, no, oh, right. maybe, maybe that's okay, it. The, <laughs> draw needless offense here. Yeah, um, but, but, it, 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 like, but that's interesting, right? Is, is which, because honestly, I wonder, um, like, is being a female overrated now? Um, and also Ooh. to a certain extent, if men are becoming women and frankly, they're way better at being women in many cases than women are like, where's my competitive advantage as a biological female, right? If well, I'm not as pretty, I, 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 I would clarify as, this. They are all biological females. Uh, as a, as course, a woman born. Of course, we can all agree that trans women have no advantage in sports. Saying that would get you canceled and it would be a terribly offensive thing to say. So I really don't think that that's what you mean to say, Simone. No, you don't mean to say that. No, I, that I is don't not, mean. That is not a fight that we are interested it in. It is not a fight, in. no. It is not a fight. Um, but anyway, I, I, it's interesting that people are choosing to change gender for reasons other than well this is a trans max community and that's something we'll talk about yeah but i think the larger thesis of what you're talking about here which i find really interesting is um actually i wish we had said this in the previous video but, you know speaking of the trans community uh something that i find really interesting is you know we were talking about the swole community and that you see this this uh body dysmorphia on both the far right the fundamental was how this desire, you know, what can seem like pretty uh, extreme or expensive or time-consuming measures. Um, but what you were saying, sorry, to the point here, uh, that was an interesting point that I just wanted to get out, uh, is 
is it better to be a woman anymore? Um, yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that women are, there was a period where society overcorrected to an extent. Um, but I also feel that despite that, uh, the, the psychological environment for women, if you look at uh, white progressive women, what is it, under 30, over half of them have a mental health issue right now. Um, yeah, not great. You know, that is not a great thing. And we can, I think, trivialize mental health issues. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not a fun thing to have like major depression or to have one of these hypochondriac, you know, issues, even if, even if uh, they're not, you know, even if you quote unquote brought it upon yourself, you really didn't. Society brought it upon you. Your parents brought it upon you for raising you in an environment uh, where you felt the need to experience these things to rise up within a, a certain social hierarchy. Well, and so I feel like there are a couple different approaches that that women are taking um, if we're going to be broad. And I think one approach is, is approach that we're taking and that also roughly I grew up with, which is to, to raise women in a masculine way, basically to raise them the same way that they would raise a boy. And I think that's really how my parents raised me to a great extent. You know, there was no like, and now you're going to put on makeup and this is how you view yourself. And this is how you have to do everything differently from boys and things like never. No, I was basically raised as a boy. And hey, we, we're giving all of our girls boys names. We're well, going I mean, statistically, they do better in their careers if they have a boy's name. Yeah. And, and so essentially we're before. taking that, that strategy, right. Is, is we're saying, yeah. you know, you are going to compete in a sphere of men. You're going to compete along masculine standards. And we expect you to do that on the other end of the spectrum. And we have, we have friends who as parents are looking at this approach, they're saying, no, I'm going, you know, women can't win in a mixed landscape. Like if I am going to have my, you know, I'm going to undergo surgery and I get to choose between having a male and a female, surgeon, I'm going to choose a male surgeon. I, you know, I, I just don't think that women are going to be as good. And, you know, I want to raise my, my, my daughters to do, you know, to lean in to other skills that they have, um, which and that is not our family value set, but it no, is what it's not. And I understand why people would make that. Well, decision. and you also see a lot of even like Gen Z young women that we know. And I, it, I don't really see this that much with, with millennial women. Well, with some exception exceptions, but I think more and more Gen Z women are going the full trad wife direction of, yeah, I'm going to lean totally into femininity. I'm not going to play in male spheres. I'm going to raise kids. I'm going to be a housewife. I'm going to do feminine pursuits. Um, and I, I have no disrespect for that at all. And like, maybe it's the right way to go. These are very different strategies though. Um, and I, I wonder which will yield better overall mental health. Like, and it's not that that's what we're optimizing for personally, but you know, if we're talking about this in the context of a mental health crisis, but would you reckon? Oh, another, another video we have to do is the mental health cult. Ah, yeah, totally. I'll make a note of that. And I think this is a good place to wrap up with this one. Unless you had something else you wanted to talk about. So basically no conclusion. We have no solution to the female mental health crisis. We, it's not raising girls masculine. It's not raising girls to we have, we, be trad wives. We have a few solutions that are like our family's hypothesis on this subject. Yeah. However, um, it's just a hypothesis. You know, at the end of the day, different families are going to try different things and we will get data as time goes on. This is one of the reasons why we created the index the, from the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion. Where we do measure outcomes from different families, different parenting strategies, because there's just no good database of this. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, everything we can say is only a hypothesis. Well, so to the question, are women doomed? 
I would say that the modern concept of woman is doomed. I think that we're entering a different kind of world. Well, this idea of women is like this weak or, or needing, you know, care or being overly emotional. You know, I think if we indulge this concept, even if it does have a, a biological basis, it, it puts our daughters at a disadvantage. Well, but I also think just the, the, the concept also of the 1980s shoulder pads, I can have it all businesswoman is not, um, yeah. it's not correct. That, that's not, it's not a sustainable ideal or even something that necessarily women want. And that seems to be falling apart. But I also think that a go back to, you know, like taken in hand marriages are like not the solution. Taken in hand really quickly. Uh, it's like consensual non-consent, like, oh, well, like, you know, it's, it's like a consensual non-consent lifestyle mm -hmm. that is aesthetically modeled after an abusive 1950s marriage. Yeah, you know, Break like the moon is the is the motto of the uh, <laughs> consensual the taken in hand. Um, yeah, like so, I don't I don't think that that's the solution either. You know that like oh like I sometimes I just need to be slapped around by my masculine husband. So yeah, it, it's interesting. I think this is a thing to watch and maybe something that we'll talk about in the future. Uh, I really like chatting with you, Malcolm. <laughs> I love chatting with you too. <laughs>